It's Wednesday, December 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The coronavirus is mutating, and while we should be cautious, there's no cause for alarm yet. A new variant of the virus has appeared in the UK that officials said could spread up to 70% faster, but luckily, the variant does not seem to be any more severe. Some have expressed concern that it might become resistant to the current vaccines rolling out. The worries are focused on whether the new strain is less vulnerable to certain antibodies. Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for what we know about this new COVID variant. Next, why are Americans so distrustful of each other? Social distrust in the U.S. is dropping. And it's one of those things that once it's lost, it's very difficult to regain. Research has found that a country's level of social trust is related to three main factors, corruption, ethnic segregation, and economic inequality. But trust is not limited to those factors alone and can't be explained away by them as well. Political polarization can also be a key factor. Kevin Vallier, author of Trust in a Polarized Age, joins us for why it's so hard to trust our fellow citizens. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We want to sort of minimize how much the virus is being spread between people and how often it has chances to mutate. So there is some pressure on governments to vaccinate their populations as quickly as possible. Joining us now is Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Apoorva. Thanks for having me. We saw a bunch of travel restrictions coming out of the UK as we're finding out that the coronavirus is mutating there. There's a variant that has popped up. The, some are saying that it could be as much as 70% more transmissible. You know, a lot of questions start coming into play when we're hearing that the virus is mutating. This is very common in viruses, from my understanding, but there's a lot of questions that come, you know, with regards to vaccines as those are getting rolled out. So, uh, Apoorva, help us walk through some of this. What are we learning about this variant of the coronavirus in the UK? So as you mentioned, it's it's not uncommon for viruses to mutate. That's just what viruses do. All viruses mutate. It's just a question of how quickly they do that and also where in the virus's sequence those mutations appear. So some parts of the virus are more important than others. Some parts are more critical for its function in terms of infecting human cells than others. And so in this case, one of the reasons that scientists are concerned about the mutations that have appeared in this new variant is that there are, first of all, at least 17 that they have seen, at least 17 mutations that they've seen from the previous version. And also, you know, many of those are on the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that dies onto human cells and infects them. So those things are quite concerning to scientists and also the fact that so many of these mutations have appeared in a relatively short time in this one one variant. Now, this variant is not only just in the UK. We're hearing that this one is also causing some spread in South Africa as well. But there's a lot of questions, as I said about this, you know, is it just the mutation that is making it spread faster? Is it human behavior as well? That is still an open question. So you're right that there is another version of this that's also in South Africa. It's not exactly the same variant. The, the, the version in South Africa has one mutation in common with the British one, which looks to be somewhat important. This number the British officials released yesterday saying the mutations are responsible for at least um, 70% more transmissibility of the variant, that is still really in question. 
because it was a modeling exercise. So, you know, they can sort of predict that that might be what's happening. But in order to be really sure that these mutations are making the virus more transmissible, they would need to do some some experimental studies, some lab studies to show that these mutations do actually help the virus become, you know, more transmissible to replicate faster or to attack cells faster. And that those experiments have not quite been done yet. Let's talk about some of these other mutations that we do know about. I guess one of the mutations is affecting antibody susceptibility. So the coronavirus has been pretty good at kind of avoiding detection by certain antibodies, certain antibody treatments, things like that. So these changes kind of help it in that way. But overall, it would really take years and years for the coronavirus to mutate so quickly that that would avoid some of these detections. That's the overall consensus from the scientists I've spoken with so far, is that it takes a very long time for a virus to be able to collect enough mutations that it would change enough to not be detected by our immune response anymore. One of the parts of concern about this British variant is that it does have this one particular set of changes. It's a, a double deletion, meaning two letters in its virus sequence are missing in this new variant. And that is associated with people becoming sort of less responsive to monoclonal antibodies. But monoclonal antibodies, you know, by the name monoclonal, it's one antibody. And that's not what you have in the human body. The human body's immune response is extremely complex, extremely diverse. So it's one thing for a virus to become resistant to one antibody that you might give as a drug, but another thing to become resistant to the, the sort of multifarious immune response that your body produces. So scientists are feeling pretty reassured by the fact that this is not going to be collecting mutations at any rate, that we need to worry that the vaccines that have been developed aren't going to work anymore. So what happens when it comes to the vaccines, as we've been saying, it would take years for the coronavirus to mutate enough to kind of change itself enough where, you know, maybe the vaccines wouldn't work. Or at that point, maybe you do like a yearly COVID vaccine where we tweak the vaccine just a little bit and and that's a benefit with these new vaccines that are coming out of Pfizer and Moderna, these mRNA vaccines. They're easily tweaked so to kind of adjust for some of these things. But we want the population, at least 60 percent of a population within about a year to kind of get this stuff. That way it minimizes the chances of the virus mutating more. So, you know, all the more reason to go get out and get your vaccines. Right, because the more that the virus is spread between people, the more chances it has to mutate. Every time the virus multiplies, it can become mutated. So we want to sort of minimize how much the virus is being spread between people and how often it has chances to mutate. So there is some pressure on governments to vaccinate their populations as quickly as possible, just to sort of keep the amount of virus that's spreading between people somewhat low. As you mentioned, you know, none of this is going to happen overnight. And, you know, at some point, if we start to notice, if scientists start to notice that the virus is starting to collect mutations that actually affect its ability to be recognized by the vaccines, then the mRNA vaccines that you mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna, both use this new technology called the mRNA technology. And that is relatively easy to adjust to a new variant of virus. Uh, traditional vaccine technology. So that's the good news. And it's also important to remember that there are scientists really closely tracking how the virus is changing. So, you know, they're not caught unawares. The reason we even know about this, in a way, that's 
sort of good news that we're we're hearing about this because scientists are keeping pretty close tabs on how the virus is changing as it goes through the world. Yeah, and you know some experts are calling for government agencies to set up these national systems to kind of constantly monitor this, share that information as soon as we see variants. That way we're just kind of on the up and up with all of this. As we've been saying, you know, it's cause for concern. We should monitor it. We need to watch out for it. But in the larger sense of it, we don't need to go back to square one and everybody needs to panic again. But, you know, in the meantime, we're seeing closures all over Europe. You know, different countries there are crafting different closure methods or barring flights from the UK, obviously just in this effort to, to limit that spread. Right. They're all being very cautious because we don't know enough yet. Um, as you said, it's not cause to panic. But scientists are concerned about this new variant in case it is more transmissible. These other countries are locking down their borders just to make sure that this variant doesn't get around everywhere. One of the things they're looking at, for example, is whether this particular variant infects kids a little bit more efficiently than the one that we've been used to seeing. Still doesn't mean that it's any more dangerous for kids or even for adults, but it might mean that it's um, it infects kids a little bit more efficiently and, and might pass through kids and to adults a little bit more efficiently. And if that's the case, then you know we do need to know those answers. So these countries are all just being extremely cautious, and that's not necessarily a bad thing right now. Definitely. We'll have to keep monitoring this and see how these things change. Apoorva Mondavili, reporter at The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's low trust that makes polarization a really big problem because when you encounter someone who disagrees with you, you don't think they're of goodwill, you think they're of bad will, and you may think that it's because of their bad will that they believe what they believe. Joining us now is Kevin Vallier, professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University and author of the book Trust in a Polarized Age. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Oh, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about uh, exactly uh, what the book is about, trust, social trust. The top line question, why are Americans so distrustful of each other? And we see it all over the place. Obviously, we went through a very contentious election. We just got out of it. We're still seeing it. The president saying, you know, don't trust the elections. Things were stolen. But beyond that, people, there's these kind of us versus them mentality when you talk about politics specifically. But really, it kind of expands into all facets of life right now. And the social trust is something that's actually been dwindling in the United States. There's actually uh, surveys that reflect some of this. So, Kevin, tell us a little bit about social trust and why it's so hard for us to trust each other right now. So the main concept with social trust, to understand about social trust, is it's trust that we place in strangers in our society. So people that we don't necessarily interact with very much, like people that we drive on the road with. So it's not trust in your family. It's not trust in your friends. It's trust in your society broadly. It's also not trust in particular institutions, though our trust in institutions and government and things are falling. So that's the kind of trust that we're looking at. And it's measured all over the world, but it's been measured in the U.S. the longest. And what we see is a pattern from the uh, late 60s where about 55 percent of people say most people can be trusted, falling gradually um, to 2018 when we have the most recent data 32% of people say that most people can be trusted. We've seen a 23-point decline, and that's really unheard of in any established democracy. There's some less stable democracies. So I just wanted to point out how very unique and what a unique position we're in. 
we're unique in another way as well, which is that our level of political polarization is the highest in any democratic country that's measured in terms of polarization. And that's just a correlation. But the way that I try to connect the two is we look at other potential explanations for social trust, and they don't actually pan out very well. So ethnic diversity, for instance, we haven't become that much more ethnically diverse over the last 40 years within particular communities or locales where that starts to matter, um, where racial differences or ethnic differences become really salient. So ethnic diversity or increases in ethnic diversity aren't a good candidate for explaining lower social trust. We have seen an increase in economic inequality. A lot of people think that that drives lower trust. But there is some international data suggesting that even if inequality uh, has some role, actually most of the explanations in the other direction, that social trust is what makes people friendlier to the redistribution of wealth in the first place. So it's countries that have high social trust that have a higher preference for welfare state policies. Then the third explanation is corruption. We do know that corruption can drive social trust lower, but given on the World Bank's control of corruption index, we haven't actually become more corrupt. Well, at least up until 2016. We'll see what the numbers are later right. or after that. So the three main explanations, I think diversity, inequality, and corruption just aren't present in the United States in the right kind of way. And so what I've tried to explore is the idea that our extreme political polarization is driving our social distrust. And I can just throw another statistic at you that's very fascinating. In 2017, about 70% of Republicans say they don't trust people who voted for Hillary. Like, not just Hillary, but people who (laughs) voted for her, right? Right. But the exact reverse was true. So 70% of Democrats say they can't trust people who voted for Trump. So all that's really going on, I think, is that our partisan distrust is translating into social distrust. This political polarization that we've been seeing for many years now, and we get into this us (laughs) versus them mentality, Mm -hmm. and then we're just fighting constantly. We're seeing it with the pandemic right now. The polarization Mm -hmm. of just the vaccine Mm -hmm. by itself was such a crazy thing to see. And we need that thing to get back to normal. But we see polls that also say they don't trust the government institutions. They don't trust the vaccine itself. So this social trust kind of goes beyond, you know, all of that. It, It just kind of makes its way to all facets of our life right now. I do think that there's various kinds of distrust that are increasing I'm going to be very sad when we see the numbers on the trust in the CDC. I'm sure that they have collapsed. But, yeah, the us versus them mentality, I think, is primed by our lower social distrust. It makes polarization easier to form and it makes it worse. So, for instance, if you're in a high trust situation and you know that people disagree with you, but you can trust them anyway, that's not such a big deal, right? Because you can usually find some way to resolve your differences. It's low trust that makes polarization a really big problem because when you encounter someone who disagrees with you, you don't think they're of goodwill, you think they're of bad will, and you may think that it's because of their bad will that they believe what they believe. So look, someone only votes for Trump because they're a racist, whereas say in a higher trust country, someone who voted for a populist candidate might not be treated in the same way. So I think it's really important to understand that the fall in social trust is kind of setting the stage For a huge amount of what we're seeing, it makes it easier to be tribalized. Here's another reason for this. We tend to listen better to people that we trust. And what we find is higher trust people tend to have more centrist opinions. Not that centrists are always correct, 
but just that people are better able to hear each other. You know, low trust people tend to be more conspiratorial in their thinking. So as our social trust falls, we can expect, I think, from distrust in media and distrust in basic factual narratives and for almost anything to be polarizable if leaders decide to do that. So Trump decides, you know, he doesn't want to lose. So he tries to polarize people in their trust in the election. I mean, one of the things he's so extraordinarily effective at is being able to polarize any particular issue to keep any consensus about what he's disapproval from forming. Um, but I also think that lower trust laid the groundwork for that, because if you think that elites can't be trusted, then you, what do you want to do? You want to drain the swamp. You want to get rid of the elite class. You want to replace them. I'm not all about everything American elites do by any stretch of the imagination. But one pattern that you do see in particular is that falling trust in government can lead to increased populist voting. And the problem is that when you get the populist in, they don't have a lot of experience and they don't have very good networks. Yeah. So what do they do? Well, they rely on their family. And that actually creates more opportunities for corruption. So the worry is that populism and populist candidates and parties aren't actually going to drain the swamp. They don't even know how to do it and so aren't going to make things better. So, again, decline in social trust is setting the stage for all kinds of other phenomena that we see. And once we understand the importance of social trust, that we can start to make sense of our social world a bit better. Losing that trust is very easy. Regaining that trust is the mm. difficult thing. How do we regain that trust? How do we build that back up? Obviously, a lot of it is leading by example, things like that. But what do you do when uh, we've been in this decline and, and we need to reverse that? I hate to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> I expected um, this already. But we can slow down the loss in social trust, I think, particularly by working on the factors that do matter. I do think that we can compress some income inequalities through a, a number of different methods that I talk about in the book, some unconventional. I do think that we can work to protect government from corruption. There's a really good bill, H.R. 1, with the House. The House passed last year before the People Act that I think would do a lot to reduce corruption, like by requiring presidents to divest when they come into office to release their tax returns and those kinds of things. And I think there's a lot more we can do for ethnic integration as well in schools and residential areas by like ending redlining and mortgages and stuff like that. That creates a sort of racial inequity in housing. So there's a number of things we can do to sort of stymie the loss. But here's the problem. I work with some trust economists that are Scandinavian, and they just study the, the, the crap out of trust because they've got so much of it. They want to know why. <laughs> right. And what they've taught me, though, is that there's no country that set out to increase its level of social trust and that has succeeded that we know of from that we have any data on. So we just don't know how to get it back. And part of this is because we don't really know how the human species evolved to do it. We're the ultra social species compared to everything but like bees and ants. But somehow we were able to go from trusting other people in our clan, right? Trusting people 50, 50 other people, 150 other people to being able to trust people all the way across the world. And we don't know why that is. So one of my next projects is to try to figure out how social trust is learned. And if we figure out how it's learned, then maybe we could figure out how to get it back. Yeah. But all I can say is, it's one of the great mysteries of social science. Right. And it's work. It's hard work that we got to put into it. So yes. uh, definitely, I'd be very interested to hear your follow-up on all of this. Kevin Vallier, professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University and author of Trust in a Polarized Age. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank, thank you so much.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.